0: Paul continues on, he says, But when Cephas, which is the Greek name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision." And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles." Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Let's pray. Father, again, we look to you to do what, humanly speaking, is impossible. For, Lord, we know that apart from the Holy Spirit's help, we do not discern the things of the Word. And so we pray, Father, that you might open our eyes as we prayed in that song. Lord, open our eyes. Spirit of God, help us in these moments to see what is so significant about the issues that Paul was confronting back in that time which seemed so obscure and far away from us. Help us, Lord, to see the importance of the gospel even in this incident and help us to see how it translates into everyday life for us as well. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. During my teen years, I spent one or two summers uh, attending a camp in western North Carolina. And one particular year, while at camp, we spent four days on the Appalachian Trail uh, in the western part of North Carolina. And at the end of every day, I can recall uh, standing on one of the hilltops that we had climbed, and we took a moment to identify the mountain that we had started the day. So we sort of looked backward and saw where we had come from and how, what a great distance that was as we went up and down those mountains with our backpacks on. And we would reflect on how far we had hiked that day. I'm going to take just a moment and sort of give us an opportunity to sort of stop and look backward to where we've come in the book of Galatians thus far and some of the just general principles that we have identified in what Paul has said thus far in this epistle. There is only one gospel of grace. The gospel proclaims that all of us, And there are no exceptions to that. All of us are more wicked than we would ever imagine. But that's not the end of the gospel, thank the Lord. We are also more loved than we'd ever dare to hope. Because God, in accordance with his great love, sent Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, to take on human flesh and to live a sinless life. And at the appropriate and approved time, at the appointed time, Jesus then offered himself as a substitute for sinners like you and me who continually break the laws of God, who is the king of the universe, who have made everything. And after Jesus died on that cross, God raised him from the dead. And the gospel proclaims that God rescues sinners not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. That he's done this for us in our place as our substitute. And that redemption is not earned. It is a gift from God. It is a gift that is therefore given on the basis of grace alone. And the gospel is all about this unmerited favor that is shown to us, even though we don't deserve it, But that is what God extends to us in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And eternal life is a gift bestowed on those who completely rely upon Christ alone plus nothing. And there is nothing that we can do to gain a right standing with God. Jesus did all that was necessary to be done. Now the gospel of grace clearly is not a human invention. Paul has made that very clear. It was revealed by God. And interesting enough, if the gospel is to remain authentic and genuine, it cannot be modified. It cannot be added to. It cannot be tweaked or somehow, quote-unquote, improved. Because the gospel, as I've just declared it to you, is powerful as it is. It is transformative. It is life-changing. And the human author of this epistle that we're reading, this letter of Galatians, the one who wrote it was radically changed by this gospel of grace alone. And he himself did not change the gospel. He defends it and continually said, I have not reinvented this gospel. This is the gospel that was revealed to me directly from God, and I've proclaimed it far and wide among religious people and among people who are non-religious. So last week we noticed that Paul made a point to emphasize that though there were differing audiences that were being reached with this gospel, some people who were Jewish in background, some people who were Gentile in background, it didn't make any difference because the church leaders who were doing this ministry were united together on the gospel. They came together, they shook hands, there was the right hand of fellowship, and they were celebrating the fact that we are unified in this gospel of grace alone. It's a wonderful thing. But the passage now before us in verses 11 through 16 of the same letter of Galatians chapter 2 we read now of a serious confrontation among the same people that last week we noticed were shaking hands together with the right hand of fellowship in the gospel that raises the question then what happened what happened between the right hand of fellowship and now the right-in-your-face rebuke. What gives? Well, I want to answer that by really posing three questions and trying in my best to answer those questions in our moments together today. First question I want to look at and consider this morning is, what happened in Antioch? This is not in Jerusalem. This is in Antioch. You see, at the time of the confrontation... The city of Antioch that is being referenced here had a population they estimate of about a half a million people. That's a big city, 500,000. And experts estimate that of those 500,000, 10% were probably only, uh, was the Jewish population of that city. Therefore it is cosmopolitan melting pot of all kinds of people there, only a small percentage are Jewish, and it is in this place that for the first time, those who began to follow Jesus, many of whom, again, were Gentiles, people who had no Jewish background, had no understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures in their background, they began to call themselves Christians. Those who follow Christ. Those who are known to be associated with Christ, the Messiah. And we find here the first signs, however, of a struggle that was beginning to surface among this population of early Christ followers. Between the Jewish believers and between Gentile believers. As they gathered together to worship together, there arose a problem between them. And Peter, one of the leaders there among the Jewish uh, side of ministry there in Jerusalem, when he came to Antioch, he did a really important and wonderful thing. He did what he would not have done earlier in his life, but on that occasion he joined right in with these Gentile, non-Jewish believers who had come to faith in Christ and they were gathered and having a meal together. He sat right down and enjoyed fellowship with these new believers and it was a wonderful, wonderful celebration of their oneness in Christ. Peter's initial actions communicated that there, is, there are indeed strong bonds among those who adhere to this one gospel. There is this unity. And the gospel celebrates these common bonds that we have together. That is, that we share in the benefits of Christ's righteousness that have been given to us on the basis of grace and that we are not accepted by God on the basis of us being better people or somehow attaining righteousness ourselves by doing all sorts of good things. So here's Peter eating with these Gentiles and it gives the evidence of the fact that the power of the gospel changes people and unites them around Christ and the gospel. You say, well... What kind of change are you talking about? Well, I don't have time to get into it, but if you want to make a note, Acts chapter 10 Acts chapter 10 records a vision that Peter had received from God in which that vision from God explained to Peter that all of your early regulations and rules regarding food that had been given to the followers of Abraham in the Old Testament that he said all those food regulations no longer are needed. Why? Because Christ has come and he has made us clean before God. Therefore, we don't need to uh, have all of these other symbolic uh, regulations that were reminding us that we need to be right and clean with God in order to deal with him. We therefore can approach God no matter what kind of food we're eating. Therefore, all those foods that at one time been said you can't have that, they're all been declared clean. There's freedom to eat whatever you want. And Peter was, of course, stunned to hear this because that's a drastic change for him, but he embraces it. And therefore, it is permissible now to enjoy table fellowship with Gentiles who have come to Jesus, and because Jesus is the one who indeed makes us clean before God. It's not what you eat or don't eat. It's Jesus that makes you clean. Well, everything's fine. They're having great fellowship together. Don't we all like to eat together? I mean, eating food? And having good, you know, some pork roast or eating, you know, whatever. Whatever was being offered, they were all participating and enjoying it together as an expression of the fact that this change has now occurred and we're unified in the gospel. But then came to town a group of people associated with a fellow by the name of James from Jerusalem. And they've arrived and they're looking at what goes on here, noticing particularly that Peter is eating, you know, uh, barbecued pork or whatever. He's enjoying all these foods that were very much something that they had never found the freedom to enjoy in their little Jewish enclave there in Jerusalem. Now they're among among all these people there in this large city of um, uh, Antioch. And so what do you see? Here's Peter. They see him as sort of, quote-unquote, acting like a pagan. He's eating this food sharing meals with people who do not care one bit about all of the food regulations found in the law. At that point, things really started going downhill. Peter then did an about-face from what he had previously been doing. And if you'll notice in your notes there, he began to hypocritically withdraw from the people who are new new to faith in Christ, who come from a Gentile background. And verse 12 says he held himself aloof. He pulled away. He said, I can't eat with you anymore. He caved in to the pressure of these who arrived from Jerusalem who were considered to be somewhat legalists, people who were very much concerned about keeping various rules, and he pulled back from his brothers and sisters in Christ. And while affirming the gospel of grace, Peter, in his practices, his public practices, He was proclaiming, in a sense, a false gospel. A gospel that was dividing people on the basis of our works righteousness. And Peter's behavior at that moment was undermining his theology. Undermining the gospel. Now that's the question of what was going on in Antioch. I've tried to summarize it the best I can. The second question is even more significant for us to think about because we want to ask ourselves, what did the individuals involved in this incident in Antioch, why did they respond the way they did? What in the world is going on inside of them that they would react the way they did? So let's look first of all at Peter, and we will sort of put Princess Barnabas along with him. Why did Peter do what he did? Well, the reason that he withdrew from the Gentile brothers and sisters is found there in verse 12. He pulled away from sharing that meal at the table because he and the others around him were afraid. They were afraid. Fear was the real underlying motive for this change in his behavior. And Peter succumbed to the peer pressure he felt from these legalists who came down from Jerusalem. Now, we're not exactly sure why he was so afraid of losing favor with them, but it's highly likely that it was that plus the fact that Peter was inclined to sort of struggle again with the upbringing that he had had and likely was dealing with issues of racial pride, which he had not perhaps really thought through the fact that he did hold quite a bit of uh, views about people who were different from him, who grew up viewing Gentiles as being somewhat inferior to him as those who were either inferior na- by their nationality or they're inferior because of their background racially or whatever it was, but he had a struggle likely at that moment of saying, well, maybe these people are not really as sophisticated as some of us who have had more refined ways of eating proper foods. And so what happened was, When our hearts oftentimes become held in the grip of pride and we fear that our identity is then governed by our performance or by the association of people around us and we see ourselves as, I'm only significant or I'm only accepted if I fit in with the people around me. We begin to realize those are the the real evidences of pride that have taken hold in our hearts and we would begin to fear the opinions of other people more than we fear and be concerned about what God thinks in a situation we become susceptible to all sorts of patterns of compromise and patterns of sin so here's peter with his concern to win the approval of this group from jerusalem these legalists and so he slips into the sin of hypocrisy He's affirming the gospel, but he's living in a way that undermines that gospel. It reminds me of a very, very helpful proverb that I have meditated on many a time in my life and go to again and again. Proverbs 29, 25. Listen to this biblical insight regarding the fear of other people, being concerned or afraid of what other people think of you. The fear of man brings a snare But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. That is, my trust in who God says I am in doing what I feel is appropriate before God and what I'm trying to do is honor Him rather than being concerned about what other people think of me. That will set you free on many different levels than feeling constrained by the approval or the disapproval or the winning the respect of somebody around you. And so here's Peter, he's caught up in following not the leading of the Spirit of God. At that moment, Peter was caught up in not embracing the gospel and preaching the gospel to himself and finding his identity wrapped up in the gospel. He succumbed now to peer pressure from those who were preaching another gospel. So therefore, I would say to you that the desire for approval, we need to sort of take this to our own hearts, it can be a powerful motive That's hard to fully grasp how much of an effect it has upon us. Here is Peter, who impacted not only just himself by his own actions, clearly was enough serious concern, but because of his own compromise, he's impacting Barnabas, the fellow missionary of Paul who had gone out and they went out together. Here they're bringing the gospel to Antioch and all these other Gentile cities, and they are the partners in mission work starting churches, proclaiming the gospel. And here's Barnabas beginning to backtrack, and he's beginning to pull away because he saw what Peter did. Maybe he was concerned to find the approval of Peter and others associated with him. It's unclear, but clearly it's, again, affecting more and more people. So what happens is that Barnabas went astray along with Peter, acted against his conscience, what he knew to be right, all because of fear. You ever struggle with that? Ever struggle with telling a lie because you don't want to face the truth because you're afraid of what that other person is going to think of you? Don't we all face that, that same fear? Certainly we do. And the psalmist who wrote Psalm 56, he struggled with the same thing. I love the prayer that he offered because he, again, struggling with fear, said, when I am afraid, God, I will trust in you. Not if I am afraid, when I am afraid, in God whose word I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? That's a man who's beginning to meditate on scriptures enough to realize what people can do to me is nothing. I want to be relating you to you, God. You're the one who ultimately governs my life, rules the world. And before you, I want to live in humble service and reliance. I wonder how many of us would say in answer to the question, do you fear criticism from other people? Would have to say, yes, I really do. Is your concern for the approval of other people nothing more than a heart idol that leads you to promote peace at any price? That you find yourself compromising what you know to be your convictions just to smooth things out. Why? because you really are concerned about the horizontal and what's happening among other people in your life more than you're really concerned about honoring Christ. I wonder if some of us could admit that we compromise what we know to be true just to settle various practices that un- unfortunately undermine the gospel. I would recommend to you, if you struggle with this, a very helpful read that I have found to be quite helpful in my life Uh, When people are big and God is small by Ed Welch. He unpacks this whole thing about being afraid of people, fearing their opinions, fearing what they think of you regarding having a great and awesome view of God governing our hearts. It's very gospel-centered. It's very helpful in its biblical insights, a very, very good uh, book for our hearts to read. It contains a myriad of insights to discuss this heart issue of how we can overcome the, the idea of being more ve- placing more value on people than we do on God. And so he's trying to help us lift our views of what God is truly like, how awesome and great he is, and learn to revere him, to be in awe of him, and learning to treasure his view of us and how he views us in the gospel. It will really set you free. I find it uh, interesting how grace The one thing that is good about grace, or one thing that's good about grace, is that it always conveys the idea of a new beginning. Grace speaks to people who are broken, people who have made foolish choices, people who have struggled in our hearts with sin. And grace speaks to us and says, there's there's opportunity for you to grow. And God helps people like us who struggle to grow and find grace in these areas to change. And I look at what Peter, in his example, what a sorry example for him to have recorded scripture, that he gets called out on the carpet for this hypocrisy. But you know, Peter is the person we identify, don't we? As the guy who, when that moment when Jesus was uh, arrested in the garden, and Peter's the one ready to take that knife and attack him, and let's fight these people, and I'm going to defend him. And that's guts. More guts than I probably would have ever shown. And yet, moments later, Peter's following Jesus at a distance a little bit, when he's arrested, taken to the high priest's courtyard, and there he is at night, and he's asked the question, aren't you one of those guys that, uh, you know, associated with this Jesus Messiah guy from up in Galilee? Which again raises the question, if I'm associated with him, what's that going to happen to me? And How do you view me? It was, it was raised by a servant girl. Not by the high priest, not by the guys in charge. A servant girl asks the question first. And what does he do? He backs away and says, no, 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 no I have nothing to do with him. And as you know, there's another question he denies, another question he even, you know, makes an oath and calls down God saying, I don't have any knowledge who this person is. Meanwhile, his, his accent betrays the fact that he is from Galilee and very likely is a follower of Jesus. And so you know of his struggle regarding fear of other people. But would you turn in your Bible just for a second and look at 1 Peter 3? Because God does not finish with people who are struggling in their hearts and who find themselves falling flat on their face with these areas of struggle with the fear of other people. God graciously deals with them. He works in them. He helps to change them. He helps them understand the gospel and the significance of that. And look what Peter writes later in life, having fallen on his face several times in this idea of fear of other men. Look what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. He writes in verses 13 and 14. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not, what? Do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Here he is quoting again from uh, the Hebrew scriptures there. And so, from Isaiah. So clearly he had been meditating on this idea of don't be afraid of people. Do the right thing. And the next verse, verse 15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He's writing to a people who are suffering for being Christ followers. And here's Peter saying, God has been gracious to me. I have failed in many areas of his life, but now I'm learning. I'm learning to rely on the scriptures. I'm learning to realize I need to focus more on fearing God and less on fearing people. It's nice to know the gospel can help us in our struggles. Well, that's Peter. God was at work in him through Paul to bring to his attention this area and then to help later on teach him more and more about what it meant to trust God. But notice, let's focus for a second, why did Paul react the way he did? Again, I would remind you that the reason Paul was reviewing this incident is not to pat himself on the back, but what he's doing here is he's defending his authority as an apostle. He was defending the true gospel of grace alone. That's the reason why he's bringing up this whole incident. He pointed to this incident as an example to his devotion to the true gospel of grace alone, and he cared enough to confront one of his fellow apostles, one of his cohorts in ministry, even including the guy he went out and did mission work with, his partner. He's willing to confront them. Why? Because his passion for the gospel was clearly seen in this incident in which he opposed Peter to his face. Look at verse 14 of Galatians 2. See, Paul was deeply concerned that the gospel was at stake. And so whether it was Peter, Barnabas, or the legalists who were setting this bad example, and they were denying in this example of what they were doing about withdrawing from these Gentiles, they were, in a sense, they were denying a very important element of the gospel. Which one commentator described like this. Here's what they were denying. God does not have fellowship with us because of our race. He does not have fellowship with us because of our customs or because of our performance. God has fellowship with us because of the grace that he has showered upon us. And when we withdraw fellowship from someone who similarly is a follower of Jesus, then we're sending the wrong message about what that gospel is all about. And when we lose sight of the liberating truths of the gospel, our hearts oftentimes will treasure the approval of other people more than the approval we already have received from God because of Jesus' atoning work on the basis of grace. So notice what Paul did. Number two, Paul responded with bold, direct confrontation. That is hard to do sometimes. Sometimes. Bold, direct confrontation. It's hard to do if you're, what, a person that fears other people. But clearly Paul was not struggling with that as much. He was very much able to speak the truth to Peter and Barnabas regarding their hypocritical public behavior. And a number of other believers in Antioch had begun to follow in these gospel compromising behaviors. Look at verse 13. It wasn't just these two men. It was now beginning to be a whole movement of people who were withdrawing from this fellowship creating this big division now within the church in Antioch. They were setting a very poor example. When something happens in public like that, and everybody knows what's going on, then you have to deal with it publicly. So Augustine has a very helpful word of advice. He says, It is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. There's some truth to that. Now, we want to follow the principles of Matthew 18, of course, correctly, but Paul is now battling for the gospel. And he wasn't concerned about the incidental issues now about social etiquette. He's not talking about, you know, uh, manners here. He's talking about, he's deeply committed about proclaiming the gospel, applying the gospel to the various relationships of those who have been saved by grace. He was deeply troubled that these church leaders were not acting in line with the gospel. If you look at verse 14, the interesting word that Paul used there, straightforward, literally means to walk in a straight line. Here were these men who were talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. So the gospel then calls us at this moment not to just ignore people and say, well, they're never going to get it, and I guess there's no hope for you. No, we... We do what? Galatians 6.1. Again, this is the very important point about grace. Grace motivates us to do what? To restore a person who has gotten out of line, a person who's not walking in a straightforward way according to the gospel. A person's lost focus of the gospel. We want to speak to them and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Paul was doing that. He was doing that in this text. Number three then, what's the best way then that we do battle for the gospel when we have to speak in this situation? Well, Paul didn't rattle off a bunch of rules that these people need to follow. He's not creating another long list of rules. Instead, look what he does there. Verse 16, he rehearses once again the gospel that Peter and Barnabas knew to be true. He's getting them back to the gospel. He reminded them of the wonders of grace. The grace that that, that celebrates the fact that in the gospel there is nothing that we can do to gain forgiveness for our sins and enjoy fellowship with God. The only thing that we are called to do is trust in Christ with all of our heart, to lean on Him, to trust in Him alone, and to indeed rely on all that He did for us in the gospel. When it comes to why Paul reacted to the way he did, it's a reminder that for you and me, The Christian life is a continual realignment process. Getting things back in the proper alignment of where life is best lived in light of the truths of the gospel. Now this is something that we realize doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen as if you got things all together when you're you know, four years into the faith or 14 years into the faith or whatever it is. It's a process that God continually is working in us and in our lives. And there are many implications to the gospel in every area of life. It can be your social life, it can be in your financial life, it can be in your intellectual life, it can be in your spiritual life, obviously, but it it touches on all aspects of life. And one of the greatest areas that the church needs to apply and reapply the gospel implications is in the realm of our relationships together as the people of God. Turn just a couple pages in in your Bible there to Galatians 5. Paul is concerned about this potential division going on among these people. He saw it happening there in Peter. He spoke to it, spoke about it with Barnabas and Peter and others. He sees it also as potential in the lives of those who still are part of this church. And he writes there in chapter 5, verse 15, he calls them not to bite and devour each other to take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now, he's not talking about literal cannibalism, but he's talking about people who do not express the appropriate evidences of the graciousness and loving relationships that ought to be enjoyed among members of the body of Christ. And perhaps because of their being nitpickers and because they were being rule enforcers and all of these people who are heaping up you're not doing this you're not doing that what maybe he began to say you guys are cutting each other down and criticizing each other to the point where you're losing the wonders of this glorious relationship that god has provided in the gospel see out of gratitude to god for accepting us on the basis of grace because of christ we are to what look at the verses there of in that same chapter, chapter 5, look at verses 14 and 15 that Paul emphasizes. We are to love our neighbor in the same to the same degree of the level of our devotion that we already show to ourselves, which, by the way, does any of us really neglect ourselves? Do you not take care of yourself? Do you not think of yourself all the time? We already love ourselves. And the gospel calls us to what? Take the degree to which you love yourself, put that as the standard by which you should now love everybody else. You say, wow, that's, that's a high standard. Yes, indeed, we need the gospel to help us because we all miserably fail in that area. And we need to resist the worldly patterns that say to, to essentially say to us, you don't need to love people who are different than you. Because because they're different from you, then they're going to be more difficult to love because you really don't have much in common with them. And I would suggest to you that we need to really fight against the tendency of the world that squeezes us into this the normal pattern of saying, I'm only going to try to develop deeper relationships with people who share my background, who have a common story that we know together, or share my my fashion tastes. God help us if our basis of our relationships is based on what you wear. Or or that we're going to say, I'm only going to develop significant relationships with the body of Christ with people who are similar age as I am. So the younger ones have very little to do with the older ones and vice versa. Which, I, by the way, have a very hard time with some of these churches that are only made up of people who are the same age. But anyway, the point is, if we are single, let's say, are we going to share our lives with people who are married? And are married people, are you going to share your life with somebody who's single? Yes! We are to share our lives together. Why? Because the gospel says we have... All kinds of things in common, not just because of our status in one or two particular areas. I know some people say, well, you know, I'm a professional. Come on, man. I'm college educated. I've, I've got all this training. You know, you mean the gospel is going to compel me to fellowship people who are blue collar? Yes. People who are not as sophisticated as you are? Yes. Maybe that's what you need is to get off your high horse and associate with people who are, perhaps, have a lot to teach you about not being so uppity up. Or the vice versa. Somebody who is in difficult straits or you have not as many opportunities in life, you resent people who are the professionals. or You resent the people who have more things in this world. And you look at them with a sense of distaste and distrust. The gospel says, listen, put all those things aside. Celebrate the gospel that makes us one. And Paul saw that, he identified it, he spoke into it with love but with direct confrontation. Let me just, a couple couple of things here I want to add here, and then I'm going to um, try to conclude. That's good, right? Okay. What are the principles that we can learn from this text? Well, there are many, but I just want to summarize a couple of them that I thought were helpful as I was reading through. Again, I've gleaned these from various commentaries. One is we want to say, first of all, well-known, well-respected Christian leaders can and do fall into sin. They mess up. They don't get it right. They don't live out the gospel consistently all the time. Guess what? That, that, that truth itself sort of undergirds the reality of that the gospel really is true, right? The gospel says we are all people who are falling short. We are people who do not love as we're supposed to. We are people who obviously struggle with sin. Guess what? That includes whether you're a leader in the church, well-influenced people. It doesn't make any difference. We all find ourselves in need of the gospel. Myself, obviously, included. I came across this quote, I heard it years ago, I thought it was a great quote. The best of men are men at best. We're just fallen, fallible people, saved by grace, and so we're going to mess up at times. And therefore, church leaders are not immune from committing sins, Sins that they themselves have preached against. And so the point here is, of course, if that happens, we're to do what? Follow Matthew 18. Go speak to your brother and speak to him, hopefully, if you can, in private if it's possible. But if he's out there preaching or teaching or behaving in ways in the public that are not compromised, then you need to speak to him. But I would like to urge you to follow these principles, look at First Timothy 5 before we just launch forward and just all of a sudden bring out a sledgehammer against some guy who is a, a, a person who in leadership within the church. First Timothy chapter five, page 14:12, has some very important principles for Timothy, who needed to understand how do you deal with leadership issues when things don't go just right. Look at verse 19 and following. "Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. We don't want just one person who might perceive something going awry and then making a huge allegation and destroying somebody because they may have gotten some rumor misunderstood. We want to make sure you got the truth. Make sure somebody else has identified that with you. Then he says, those who continue in sin, this is those in leadership... Those who continue in leadership in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may also be fearful of sinning. The church needs to take a clear stand say, this was not done appropriately. This is not right. We as a church are not going to accept this. And then he says, uh, verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Those who are in leadership, make, make sure that you apply the same biblical principles to those who are in leadership and those who are not. And so you've got to follow those particularly important guidelines. Now, if someone is undermining the gospel, we need to go to that person, no matter who they are, no matter what their title is, no matter what position they have in the church, it's that important. It's that important. All right, second point here I want, second principle. Letter B. Actions speak louder than what? Words. So Peter's actions and Barnabas' actions were the real problem here. No, it wasn't what they were saying. It's what they were doing. Now, they would have affirmed the gospel, but it's the way that we live exemplifies the gospel or denies the gospel. It's important to know that. And apparently it's so important, we're going to keep this siren on until you get that point. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Okay, there we go. Now we can move oh, can't move on to the next one. Um, we can affirm the gospel and say, you know, I believe the gospel to be true. But that affirmation you make verbally can at times be contradicted by your life example if you're not living in a way that's consistent with the fruit of that kind of understanding and truth. And, and I would just point this out to you uh, as uh, Paul's concern for Timothy, let's say. First Timothy 4, Paul speaks into the life of this younger guy in leadership and he says to them, Listen. Let nobody look down on you because of your youthfulness, but rather, what in speech, what you say, your conversations, in your conduct, in love, in faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. He says he's been talking to him about correct doctrine. He says make sure your life is something that you are very careful in how you live out the gospel. First Timothy four sixteen. He says pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. And so it's a good reminder for those of us. Uh, Here's a a quote. Faithfulness involves more than believing right doctrine. Right doctrine without right behavior always produces hypocrisy. Think about it. If you're saying one thing, but you're doing another, then the hypocrisy is pretty obvious for all to see. So, actions speak louder than words. Uh, Third point here in in my final, and that is this. Truth is more important than outward peace and harmony. Truth is more important than outward peace and harmony. Some people will try to avoid conflict at any cost. They will try to maintain peace at any price. And the problem with this strategy, ultimately, is that it will eventually undermine biblical truth and it will result in a false kind of peace. And this is the pattern of the world. That's what the world loves. The world loves compromise. The world loves just sort of getting along and not really walking in accordance with truth. And so here's my suggestion to you regarding the strategy for the people of God in this item. It's 1 John 1, 7. We're to walk in the light as God is in the light. That means what? Truth is clear and evident for all. And we're living in the truth. And the truth will expose us. The truth will cause us to see that many times we are not keeping and living in accordance with the gospel. That will happen. And we have fellowship, though, as people who likewise are having the truth show us our failings, but the truth of showing us who Christ is. So we have fellowship based on that. And then there's this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love that. Because you cannot have fellowship and truth when you see people's sins exposed if you lose sight of the gospel, it says we are all fine cleansing, we all find grace, we all find forgiveness, because we all are messed up. And we all love ourselves more than we love other people. And many of us struggle with the fact that we love opinions of other people more than we are concerned with God's view and God's agenda. And so I say to you, let's not be Pharisees, more concerned about looking stupid before other people and being fearful of what they think of us than we are about acting sinfully against God. Let's pray. Again, our Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use this portion of your word and that you would apply it to the hearts of all of us here today, Lord, exposing us, piercing through our defenses, our public persona, Our image that we oftentimes try to come across as if we are all together. Lord, help us to not miss the point of this passage of your word that shows us that oftentimes we do clearly evidence the fact that we need the gospel. We are not living consistent with it. We don't exemplify a life that says, I welcome people and I desire to see myself as just as much in need of grace as other people around me, no matter what their background is, no matter what their story, no matter what their, their lifestyle or their, 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 uh, their clothing, their fashion statements they make. No matter what their age or their nationality. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to knit us together on the basis of the gospel. I pray that you would help those who are here today, Lord, and they can't Uh, have never really embraced Christ, and they're still trying to improve themselves, I pray that even this day they would begin to appreciate in a saving way all that Christ has done for each one of us. Those who come in faith, those who receive what Christ has done by faith, can enjoy grace, undeserved favor from you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to cause us to marvel at the gospel. And to be molded and changed by it. That we might become more like Christ. To the glory and the honor of your great name I pray. Amen.